Welcome to the Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From Lidos to lakes, by leisure centers in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer, and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley, and every week I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. TryHard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. In this episode, I have a chat with the wonderful author, Kathy Rensenbrink. Her first book, the best-selling The Last Act of Love, is a memoir about the life and death of her brother. Next, she wrote a manual for heartache, a broader look at how to try and live with the knowledge that life can be cruel. She's a fanatic reader, and I suspect has read everything ever, so it makes sense that she wrote Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books. Now she's got her first novel out, which is called Everyone is Still Alive. Kathy lives in Cornwall, so of course we spoke about all of the beautiful swimming there, as well as creating good habits, how life can change us, grief, writing, and being the chatty kind of person who speaks to other swimmers in the sea. We may sound a little excitable at the beginning of our conversation, and that's because I'm lucky enough to have been mentored by Kathy. She's such a warm and generous person with bundles of advice to share which you'll hear for yourself in this episode. Enjoy. Freya, how delightful to see you. How's everything been going? Congratulations on your book. It must be so exciting for it to be out there and to actually be seeing people and going to real bookshops. Yeah, it's all been very nice and I'm very interested in what people say. So I'm really enjoying that. Are you also finding time to kind of accept that people are loving it and hearing the praise and letting all of that sink in because I think so much it's very easy to be self-critical and worry about what people are going to think and then it's wonderful when people say really nice things but sometimes we don't hear those bits as much. Yeah, it's it's funny all that, isn't it? But mainly I'm really interested. I just love the way people respond. Like somebody sent me a note today saying about, because there's a bit where, um, oh, the character's trying to buy a birthday present, but worried about wasting their money on lots of plastic and, you know, lots of unenvironmentally friendly gifts, all that. And somebody sent me a note today saying, that was so good. My husband came home with these plastic minions the other day. And I thought the planet's going down the shitter and the kids are buying plastic stuff, but I don't want to be a killjoy. And I thought, yes, that's exactly it. So I like that. Oh, wonderful. And I loved as well that I saw you had a swim on publication day. Is that a new tradition for you? Mm. I did it on the day of Dear Reader in September, again, with Nina Stibby, and she encouraged me into it. So we're going to make it a tradition and go swimming on publication day of each other's books, I hope. But my next book that's published is out on the 6th of January. So that'll be a bit chillier. (laughs) A shorter swim, but it'll still be a celebratory swim as well. Yeah. And where do you go when you do that? Where was the swim for your publication day? At Gillingbay's Beach, which is in Falmouth. And that's where we've done it both times, actually. So that's usually where I do go swimming. And tell me about it there. What's the water like? Do you walk there? Do you drive there? I usually walk there. I mean, what I really like doing is running there because I find that if I'm going to be a bit wimpy about being cold, the nice thing about running is you just really do want to get in the water. So I quite like running there. And then I I do get really caught up in the kerfuffle of all of this. Often what stops me swimming is is sort of fussing about, about what I'm going to wear and whether or not I'm going to get changed. So I do also like not having to get dressed again afterwards, just putting on a big towel. So I tend to just do that and then walk home. (laughs) I think with all good habits, actually, trying to work out what it is you don't like and getting rid of it if it's not part of the core activity. So yeah, I really dislike getting dressed on a beach after swimming, you know, with slightly numb fingers and toes and trying to get the sand off you. It's just annoying. So I've kind of just decided not to do it. So I don't do it. And then I don't mind. I just come home and have a shower and then get dressed normally. Yeah, that's a good idea. Any of these things that end up being barriers to doing things 
that are good for us. I think that's the same with me with the cold after I get think, oh, it's going to be horrible and cold afterwards. So for me, I cycle home afterwards because that really keeps me warm. But I think a lot, I remember you talking about making habits when it comes to writing and setting timers and treating the child in you. So you told me lots about these hourglass timers that you have and you'll sit down and try and write for 10 minutes. And I have to do the same with swimming in that I will very easily persuade myself, it's too cold outside. I don't have time. I'm too busy. The Lido is going to be really packed and I really have to stick to the commitment that I make myself because I know the feeling after is that I'll have had a lovely time and it would have really refreshed me and given me almost more time back in my day because I'll be feeling more productive. But actually doing it is like a different thing entirely, isn't it? It's really interesting how difficult we find it. Not everyone is like this, but most I am and most people I know are, how difficult we find it to do stuff that we know is really good for us. (laughs) But you know, it's always easier to not do it. That's what I think with writing. It's always easier just to stay in bed and eat sweets in your pajamas, reading someone else's book. And it's always easier not to go swimming and not to go running. But all those things, I'll feel much better if I do do it, as well as trying to think of ways in which to make it fun and factor in things around it that I will perceive as treats. I also try to just take a slightly longer view. What will I wish I'd done later on today? I wish I'd done writing and done swimming. And then the more I do it and the more I see that and notice that properly, then that sort of helps me to be self-disciplined. You have quite a few things to be self-disciplined about because there's the writing and then does the swimming count as part of that as well? Or is that more the treat side? I think it's very interesting. What I'm always trying to do is basically slightly trick my brain into thinking that things I need to do are treats. So I try to, you know, obviously writing now is the way I earn my living, but I try to think that it's the treat that I will get if I look after myself properly and, you know, sleep well and keep my mood in a good place. And likewise, I try to think that swimming and running are treats because the brain really likes treats, but you can tell it that you can just tell it that something's a treat. And what I've found is it will sort of start believing you, especially if you don't allow myself to have any of the more addictive treats. So I don't drink alcohol anymore, for example. So when I did drink alcohol, alcohol was, I was very motivated about drinking alcohol. Didn't need convincing it was a treat. It was very much just, well, it was a treat and a habit and a necessity. But now that I don't do that, I find that I can tell myself that something a treat. So some of my treats at the moment are, and these aren't even, these aren't, these are things I'm looking forward to. I really want to buy red climbing rose to put in a particular place in up against the wall of one of my houses. And one of my houses, I haven't got lots of houses. <laughs> Sorry. One of the walls of my house. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Like I'll drive in one of my cars to one of my houses. There's this particular place against one of the walls where I think a red climbing rose would look nice there. And I've wanted a red climbing rose like for years. I've had this thing about it. So it's it's a treat that at some point I will I will gift myself. And it's probably because I as I run and walk around where I live, I'm always looking at the nature and sort of admiring it. And I do find that almost everything is useful for writing. Almost everything is a metaphor for writing. And swimming certainly is. Like, It's the getting started that's the problem. You know, it's lovely in, (laughs) I think, is something that you can say about swimming and you can equally say about writing. It's the getting started. It's the making the effort. It's the sort of the working out how you're going to do it and taking the plunge. That's the tricky thing. And then it's really enjoyable to do. And I think, you know, I have really good ideas for writing when I'm swimming, when I'm sort of splashing around. I also think anywhere where you just don't have a device or access to a device tends to be, you know, tends to be really good for us. And that's exactly what I was going to say was that swimming is probably where I feel most creative because I'm usually the farthest from my phone. There's very few situations in life now where I am more than an arm's reach from my phone. And when I really started swimming properly, I was actually quite shocked and maybe a little bit disgusted by how difficult I found that to be away from my phone and really to even go a length or two without thinking about my emails or my text messages. And it did become, okay, let's see how long I can stay in the water without it and without thinking about it. And that practice did really slowly help me. And now it is a place that I have lots, lots more ideas, which is good. But even just becoming aware of that, I think is part of the process to learning to be a bit more present. Yeah, I think, I mean, I just think so many of us are addicted to our phones without even realising that that's what it is. Before the pandemic, obviously, a couple of years ago, I went on through one winter. I went swimming every Friday, sort of afternoon, early evening with my husband. So my parents would look after our son. 
and we'd go swimming. And it was just great to be able to leave everything in the changing room and then like really try and stretch out the amount of time we'd spend swimming. There was one of those um, steam rooms as well, which I really, really like. And to just stretch out that time. And then I would find afterwards, again, I'd just be a bit shirty about it because I'd want to keep my phone off and he'd be, you know, sort of like getting changed and looking at his phone. I think, what are you doing that for? Why, why ruin the, you know, why ruin the mood? Let's not let anyone else in. So I think all of that stuff's quite important. Yeah, you do really stretch into it, don't you? And then you really have that time and begin to feel comfortable without that anxiety of feeling needed to be tied to the other world because you're a bit more comfortable where you are in that moment after you've had a swim. I do find I want to stretch into that a little bit more and, you know, maybe I won't check until I've got home and I finish my cycle as well. And then I'll sit with that a bit too. But then it does come with the other side that swimming is also a great place for community. And I know that you post a lot of pictures about your swims and that can be really nice to share that element of it too. So it's like finding the right balance between all of these things. Yeah, it is. I post a fraction of what I do, which I think is quite important. I mean, mainly because if I if it becomes too linked, then I do find that's just the problem with the devices, isn't it? And the little flashing lights that you do just very quickly become. So I try to make it that it, it sometimes is an incentive. Like I like the in a particular mood, I like the idea of sharing the space. I mean, I'm very sociable by nature. There are swimming groups. I know a couple of people in Cornwall who swim, but none of them swim near me. You know, so I've got a friend who does it in St. Ives. It's just too far away. I would love to be swimming with people rather than swimming on my own. So I would love that. So sometimes it feels like a companionable and friendly thing to do to post the pictures of it. But I don't want it to be that I do that all the time because I'm always trying to liberate myself from my phone. And uh, with running as well, I used to use a, a sort of a running tracking app and I've just stopped doing that because I just resent the fact that my it means that my phone has another hold over me. <laughs> but I've mastered the art because, again, what I want to do is I want to stay in the moment. So I like the idea of sharing my sea. And I feel really kind of, it does feel really heartfelt. I want, you know, if people can't see the sea or get near the sea, I want to, you know, I want to be able to share it with them. But I don't then want to get dragged into my phone. So I've sort of mastered the art of just posting a picture and not looking at, and you know, not looking at the app, ignoring the notification lights, which is quite hard. And then I'll later on I'll I'll look. But that feels like quite a good thing to have done. But it's all I mean, it's just always quite interesting, isn't it? That thing of do you enjoy the experience or are we recording the experience? And I do try to err on the side of enjoying the experience rather than making a record of it. Of course, once you write, you're doing that all the time anyway. And sometimes, again, sometimes I do feel a slight, uh, I don't know, almost like weariness or self-disgust that everything is copy, you know, that no one can say anything without me ferreting it down in a notebook for future ref. <laughs> oh, I was, I did that last night and I felt so guilty. I was out listening to some live music, which was amazing to be out again, listening to music. And it was jazz. So it was very, that always makes me a bit more reflective anyway. And I was looking around, noticing things about people. And I really wanted to write some things down. And I thought, well, I can't get my phone out because it would ruin the atmosphere for everybody if I was sat there on my phone. But I want to write. So I carefully brought a pen out of my bag and was about to start writing something down. But I just found that I wasn't in the moment. I'd pulled myself out because of this kind of constant addiction you have as a writer to always be wanting to take notes and being observant with things. And it's both fantastic and sometimes a bit frustrating because on the one hand it does make you more observant and maybe I wouldn't have been watching people or picking up on what they were doing or how they were listening to the music but then at the same time I was also pulling myself out of that moment by feeling stressed that I wasn't able to capture that forever. Yeah I think that's all very interesting and I was thinking I quite often think now of something that happened in the past and I just I'm just quite cross with myself that I didn't make better notes about it. (laughs) because I now want it you know at the time I didn't know maybe I didn't feel confident about myself as a writer so I didn't know that I'd want that now there's various things where I think like oh wish I could go back at time and notice that properly but yes I don't know it somehow makes you a scavenger of your own life doesn't it so it's not I don't think it's always it's not always tremendously comfortable I wonder if I'd fix it a bit by you know, because I'm writing a contemporary novel at the moment. And one of my thoughts is, like, if I wrote a historical novel, would it be easier to not always be ransacking my own life for detail? I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure whether it would really. I think the people that you live with sort of have to kind of know what you're doing. My son quite likes it now because he's tumbled to the fact that I've said I will, like, pay him for research, which I feel is morally right. You know, I don't think I should just be stealing bits of him. So if he says anything I find interesting, I say, like, oh, do you think I could put that in my novel? And he says, yeah, if you pay me. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very entrepreneurial of him 
I know. I did say to him that I said it seems like a suitable arrangement to me, but he might not in the future be lucky enough to tumble on someone that wants him as a muse. So I don't want to, you know, like one of his cousins has a paper round and has to work really hard mm-hmm. <laughs> to get quite a small amount of money. And Matt earns quite well off me writing him down. Off so, being witty, off his own witticisms. Yes, that it might, this might not be a lifelong career possibility that you could just find a writer and charge them money for, for writing down your words. That's nice that that's a way to bring him into understanding what you do in your creative process, though. And I'm wondering if you think that as writers, we are people that live very much in the present because we are noticing these things, or actually if we're very the opposite and need help being more present because we're always kind of half somewhere in this dream world of things that we're writing down in this fictionalized version of the present, and whether that's why lots of us quite like swimming. Uh, yes. I mean, I don't, I've, for me, it's a very all encompassing slightly obsessive endeavor so I do tend to put everything else in the service of it and just struggle not to be like I've always just got a parallel track running with what I'm thinking about and it's not a question of I choose not to turn that off I just can't really turn that off so that's always going on and again even with the I'd say one of the reasons I like swimming and running is because I just think I get good ideas then what I usually tend to be wanting to escape from and I'm not very proud of this is I actually want to be escaping from real life and real responsibilities <laughs> that's usually what I'm trying to give the slip to I do feel that the mind like when you can somehow dive into your own mind and again as distinct from you know sitting in front of a device reading lots of news or scrolling or whatever I think the the opposite of that, I think being alone with your own mind and engaging with your own thoughts, that does feel to me like diving into clear water. And I think a lot about the mind. And again, sometimes if I spend too much on social media, I do feel it's like I've just injected squid ink into my brain <laughs> and and I need to get some quite a lot of distance from it so that I then feel like I'm swimming in clear waters again. Yeah. A huge amount of clarity. Yes, and I just think water lends itself so much to both be cleansing. It feels so fluid, obviously, but also something interesting about the water, isn't it? The way that it is so supportive, which I notice as, you know, I'm feeling a bit creaky lately because I have quite a good yoga practice going and I've just sort of given it up. I don't know whether you heard that crack. As I said that, I kind of like lifted my feet up and my ankle went crunch. But the really nice thing about swimming is you just don't feel your, you just feel you can really move without the possibility of doing yourself any damage. So it feels like such a good thing. I'm wary of the, of course, I swim in the sea, which I love, but I'm not an adventurous swimmer at all. I'm very much a splash around in the shallows. I don't really go out of my own depth. And if I am out of my own depth by accident, I quickly swim in. I don't feel confident that I could sort of swim, I don't know whether properly is the word. I'm not, But also I'm not really interested in getting better. And it's the same with running. I don't want to run further. I don't want to do 10Ks. I just want to be able to run for half an hour, three times a week, you know, and the same with swimming. I just like to get in the water. I'd like to really get in the water most days. My aspiration, which I've not done yet, is I would really like to be a year-round swimmer, you know, without a wetsuit. And so far, if not, I got to about October last year and then went away for 10 days and sort of lost the, I think you just need to do it pretty much every day and then you'll probably carry on. It's quite fun the other day because usually my husband's much better than I am at getting in the water, like much braver, but I've been swimming and he hasn't. So when we went in together the other day for the first time, he was sort of like shivering on the edges for ages. And by this time, I'm just like straight in. (laughs) So that was quite fun. But I do go straight in. I used to sort of shiver about in the shallows, whereas now I just I just go for it. I'm just straight in. <laughs> yeah, I stand and contemplate it for a bit. I get to about waist height and look at it and think, and then I kind of uh, get in. But I think when I tell people I'm very into swimming, they assume I swim properly and have an idea of what yeah. that means, that they think I'm there with my goggles and a swimming cap. But usually I'm breaststroking and it's just about being there and enjoying it. And I think it's nice to free yourself from that idea that, we need to do something properly, especially if you're the type of person that have a lot of goals and you're very ambitious, having something where it's not about going further or getting better, but it's just about enjoying it in that moment can be really important. It sounds like it's the same for you with running, that the pleasure is in doing it and being there, not in always having to perfect the strength or do this new challenge. And for me, that's very much 
been the case. I get in and I have a dip. I'm mostly a dip swimmer. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's what I do. I have a dip, have a dip, have a splash. Though I did also enjoy the pool. But one of the things I really like about it is it just does feel like a communion with nature. So I really enjoy, you know, I do a little bit of, I mean, I don't think I even really do breaststroke. I do sort of breaststroke arms, but doggy paddle legs. Most of the time. And then I'll just flap around on my back looking at the sky. It was quite exciting the other day. I'm not, again, because I'm not particularly confident. And it's not a bad thing not to be confident with the sea. Because, you know, when you live in a seaside place, there are always news reports of people getting it wrong. So it's not necessarily bad not to be gung-ho. So I'm not confident. So I would would never get in the sea, for example, if no one else was in the sea. I would think it probably meant there was something going on that I didn't know about and that other people knew about. But the other day was quite nice because when I got to the – it was a – I mean, a really rainy, grim day, but I thought, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. And I got there and there were about five people in the sea. So I got in and then they all got out. But it was nice already being in. I just stayed in for a few more minutes. And I did really enjoy being in like the whole sea to myself, swimming about. And that was quite exciting. Again, not going far or fast or whatever, just sort of splashing around on my own. <laughs> Loved it, actually. So, yes, just enjoying like feeling my body in the water and feeling the way I went through and even the you know my feet on the sand and getting better at because the beach where I swim is quite heavily it's not particularly comfortable underfoot but of course now I'm used to it I I'm really good and this was really useful the other night I was out for a walk just a normal walk and my flip-flops broke halfway through the walk you know that thing where they just severed so they were un- they were unwearable and I had to walk home to walk home about three miles on the road. But because I've been doing all the beach, because I've been doing the swimming, my feet are just toughened off. So it felt really good. I felt really good and resourceful. Like, oh, my shoes are just broken. That doesn't matter. I can just walk home barefoot. That felt really good. Hardened, hardened and ready for the outdoors. And you've got some beautiful outdoors near you. Cornwall is just some amazing swimming spots. And especially if you're going to go for a run and be outdoors and then spend that time where the water suddenly appears and you can see it through the trees. Uh, It's just some amazing places to be out in nature. Are there any that you remember, especially from your childhood or that you have really specific memories from that you now return to, or are you in a very different place from where you used to swim? So where I live now is where I lived the first five years of my life and also where we carried on visiting because my grandparents were here and until they, my granny died when I was 12. So until then we visited a lot. So I do, St. Moore's particularly, we used to go to a lot when I was a child. So that always gives me childhood memories. And actually some of the North Coast beaches that I don't go so much. So my granddad was really keen on Portreath. And the North Coast, I mean, I live on the South Coast, but I do love the North Coast of Cornwall, the the great huge expanses of Sandy Beach. So whenever I go to one of those, I do, there's, again, for me, something almost a bit extra special going on. I think it's something to do with sea as far as the eye can see almost. And then, I mean, everywhere's wonderful. I went swimming with a friend near Land's End recently off a tiny, tiny little beach. But again, just utterly, utterly gorgeous. So I would sort of, I would go anywhere, really. And I just like the, I don't, I mean, I can't surf. So I'm not, it's not like I'm looking for waves as people do. But I just like the sort of the expanse of the long beaches. There's something very nice as well. One of the other things I really like doing and I do it on my beach here, but it's obviously better in a longer one. I really like walking the line of the sea lapping in. Mm. So bare feet and just but walking the whole length of the beach, but sort of in and out of the water as it's coming in. And I think that's, oh, there's something really sort of restful and gorgeous about doing that. It's very meditative, that feeling of it coming in and coming out, especially if you're breathing at the same time or thinking about things or trying to let go of any thoughts. The way the waves wash out and then come back, I think is really nice. Yeah. And I play in the sand as well. So I'm often making pictures with my toes and then watching them, you know, hearts and or playing knots and crosses and then watching it get washed away. And I'm sure that's, you know, I'm sure I probably loved doing that when I was about five and I still really like doing it now. But that's great to return to those things that we do when we're young, because so often we grow up and we become adulty and we reply to emails and we have meetings to go to and we forget to return to those things and be a bit silly and just enjoy nature and play with it. I absolutely think so. You know, often when I'm talking to friends and they're very busy and they're very rushed and I say, oh, let's just, you know, come down here and let's try and get some sand under your toes. Because I just do think it's going to really help people to 
yeah, to just come and draw hearts with their toes in the sand and then watch them get washed away. It's very nice. And I'd love to talk about swimming and also grief, because when I first became aware of you as a writer was through your memoir, The Last Act of Love, which maybe you can tell any listeners a little bit about if they haven't read it. So yes, it's a book about the death of my brother, who I adored. And it was a long, and complicated death. He was knocked over by a car, but he didn't die straight away. He died eight years later. And of course, it was a terrible eight years of hope gradually being overtaken by despair. And I wrote about it a long time after it happened. I was 42 when I finished that book. And it was my first book because I kept, I didn't really want to write about it. So I kept trying to write funny novels about adultery and failing. You know, a dead brother would march into the book, usually about chapter seven. Get as far as chapter seven on the plan that I was, you know, that chapter seven would go to plan. And then somewhere after chapter seven, either he'd arrive or a, dead sibling storyline would arrive and unbalance the whole thing. So I did manage to do it. And I feel very pleased that I have done it. And of course, other people like it and find it comforting. So I think, I don't think I could ever really regret something that other people find useful. And I do feel very fortunate because people often get in touch with me to say that they found my books have been useful for them. So it's a big sort of brouhaha having a book out. And it's very difficult not to get sucked in with who likes it and what they said in The Observer and all that kind of stuff. But, and you know, that way madness lies, really. But what I'm always trying to bring myself back to is the meaning and purpose of the work itself. And so the, the reader responses are a really important part of that for me. And I really like what people say, you know, about all my books. And I'm enjoying it with the, with the novel as well, which is the newest thing that's out. I really like what people tell me about their selves. I try to do that as a writer. I try to leave space for the reader to sort of see themselves in it. And then I really like it when people write to me and tell me what they've seen of themselves in it. So that feels like a virtuous circle. Yeah, it must do. And I remember personally reading that book, feeling this huge sense of somebody else can relate to something I feel. And I think it was maybe a year or two after my brother had died that I read that book. And although the circumstances were very different, having that feeling of someone else understands and somebody else has been through this and been on a journey and also that the story feels very real and human and tender and there was a journey there that was your journey that it didn't feel like something that I had to get over and move on from in a sense like that and although writing's been a big part of my experience with grief and with loss so is actually swimming because I don't know if you have this as kind of the same that Matty was older than you and that you lost him when you were both quite young. And for me, with my brother, Tom, he was 19 when he died. So often when I'm trying to imagine him being in my life now, it's quite hard to do that because I feel like he sometimes doesn't really fit in the picture with me and my sister and what we're doing because we've grown up and he's not been there. Whereas swimming is something that I can instantly imagine us being together or that it feels like it connects me to him as well, because that was something that was very present in our childhood was water and play and being outdoors. And it's, I find one of the few ways that I can really pull him into my present. So I was wondering if you were talking about some of your holidays and memories in Cornwall, whether you felt like that was the same for you and memories from your childhood. I think it's such an interesting point that one of the ways in which we, you know, I think we often want to carry on having a relationship with the dead loved one. But we, again, they don't, you know, I was 17 when he was knocked over. So nothing I was doing, you know, I wouldn't now be doing anything I was doing at 17. So it is difficult to kind of fold them into the words of your life. But I do feel not quite in the same way, but we did. I, I think one of the reasons why I feel very connected to these waters is because we did ultimately scatter Matty's ashes into the sea. One of the places where I go running now is just above the rocks where we did that. We did it on a very, very windy and cold New Year's Eve. And I sort of definitely like the fact that he was scattered into that sea and that I now swim in it in my attempts, you know, fairly successful at the moment to not only be alive and stay alive, but to find enjoyment in life without him there and he's got a plaque there's another beach called Swampool and there's a cemetery above it and that's where my granny is buried and my great-grandparents her parents she's buried in the next line to them and we put a plaque for him on her grave so yes that's significant and important to me I think why I like hanging around these places I often run by when I'm running I often run past run past the graveyard and sometimes I sort of stop and sometimes I give a cheery wave and sometimes I don't really even think about it which I think is a good evolution and that he would 
like that. And that's something that you've written about a lot is actually that process of being okay and not being okay and finding ways to move on and to actually just simply exist and be alive and think about what it means to be alive while you're dealing with loss, especially in your book, A Manual for Heartache, which I'm constantly thrusting into people's hands and saying, you have to read, you have to read this. So tell me a little bit about that and some of the story in that book and about learning all these things that have really helped you cope and move forward. Well, I suppose, you know, so I wrote my first book, The Last Act of Love, and then it was really amazing because it was because people responded to me. And then I just felt I learned, I mean, I learned a lot by writing that book. But then I felt I learned even more about love and death and loss and specifically probably sibling loss. But I get an awful lot of letters from people whose children have died. and But they say that my book is helping them to understand their other child, mm. you know, what's happened to their other child or children. I mean, it's, it's incredibly moving and a great privilege to me. But I felt I learned lots more and wanted to, you know, write something else that was a bit more practical. And also something where people didn't necessarily have to engage, you know, what, what happened to my brother is pretty, I mean, it's pretty grim in places. It's, it's, it's a hard thing. So I sort of liked the idea of trying to write something with the intention of being helpful and where the, where the reader didn't need to know anything, you know, that apart from the general, you know, the general sort of fact of it. And also I think, you know, that, that something had qualified me to talk about grief because because we wouldn't be interested in you know if nothing bad had happened to us we would have nothing to offer would we i think that is one of the you know when you realize that knowledge is transformative that can be quite helpful so i wanted to write something where there was no sort of sad or difficult story but it was just almost like a collection of helpful suggestions or ways of thinking it's interesting because of course i'd never considered a pandemic when i wrote it but i hear from a lot of people that tell me that it is a helpful coronavirus book <laughs> i mean a lot of it is about that thing of of just what you do in a really broad sense when life doesn't go your way you know you're sort of trundling on expecting one thing and then woof something happens and it's a complete change other people i hear from i mean i hear from people for lots of reasons but that book specifically i quite often hear from people who've been in a relationship that they thought was really solid and then it's like derailed like often overnight and often in some sort of catastrophic way or in a way that feels catastrophic at the time you know there's been some sort of awful discovery with that book I do often hear from people who who have that sort of story and of course with with all of them my sort of theory or thesis now is that so what I used to think and and again it's our society doesn't really help us with this so what I used to think was that you'd somehow get back to normal you know because it's all that stuff people say like oh it takes a year I mean of course a year seems an incredibly long time when you're young but still you kind of think that after a year you're going to be okay and I now think that's just fundamentally the wrong way to think so I think there are things that happen to you there are some things in life that happen to you which just mean like you'll just be changed by them you're never getting back to the way things were and actually once you've accepted that the paradox of it is that once you've accepted that, that's that's okay. And I realized it, you know, I spent years striving to be my former self. And when I realized that that self wasn't available to me, that was quite a relief, really. And then you realize, well, the life that I had has gone. It's just gone. It's lost in time. And the person I was was lost in time. But there is a new life for me here. There is another life waiting for me to walk into it. And that's really what I wanted to say in that book. And I think, I think it's, again, I don't really think it almost matters what's happened to you in a way whether it's a sort of a horrible bereavement or it, you you know a, a betrayal or a, or a virus or a you know whatever it is it's it's that same feeling of almost kind of like this isn't what I signed up for I didn't expect this to happen you know and it's so funny isn't it because of course newspapers are full of terrible things happening but somehow we don't quite believe it will happen to us until it does happen to us and then sometimes we're too quick to think it might happen to us again. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the other thing. What Once the bad thing has happened, it can be difficult to not think it's about to happen again. Yeah, and sometimes you feel people reacting in that way to your own experience. If you tell somebody about something awful that's happened to you, you almost see people recoil as if they're going to catch it. And I can feel sometimes people, rather than engaging or interacting with my experience and what I'm saying, suddenly having that panic of, oh, imagine if that happened to me, which can be a little bit difficult. And I suppose really any of these experiences that you're talking about that could be helped by people reading your book or any situation where you feel like the rug has been pulled from under you and the life that you knew is gone and you're facing a new reality, 
and I definitely used to feel very much a frustration with anybody that didn't know loss. And I felt very much like people don't understand and they don't understand my reality or the way I view things. And they're lucky that they don't get it. And I think part of getting older and being more mature and evolving as a human that's maybe trying to be more empathetic is realizing that people have that in lots of different ways. And part of meeting people with where they are and appreciating that other people can be going through something that's different to me and it's no worse, it's no better, has been actually communicating with them via giving them your book and saying, whatever you're going through, I appreciate that you're going through something. This is something that helped me, even if it's been different, even if it's a different circumstance. Here's help and here's me saying, I feel you, even though it's different. Well, that's really lovely. Well, I feel very honored by that. Yes, I feel as well. I become more, um, I don't know, forgiving, I guess, as I get older. And of course, it's horrible to be in that stage where you can see people shrinking away from you and not wanting to be your pain. But I mean, I hope I never quite do it. But I feel sometimes now, you know, my son's 11 and I don't always feel in the right place that I can take on people telling me about horrible things that have happened to boys of his age. I just it's like I can feel myself doing it. I want to put my hands up and I want to say, don't, you know, I have enough difficulty already coping with my anxiety about him being in the world. I don't want more evidence that something might something terrible might happen to him. And and I think oh, it's sort of interesting because that's probably some of the people that responded to my brother's accident the way they did were probably parents with children the same age and they were probably feeling the same way that I do now so I'm very keen at the moment on this idea that if you expect life to be full of treats and excitements then that's going to be tricky but I more these days think that life is about accumulating experience and that if you view life as a mechanism to deliver experience to you that does sort of take the edge off the bad stuff And I found that actually swimming is a way to have a bit more empathy and forgiveness for other people in that when you turn up to the pool, there are lots of people that are there on their own. But often, especially if you go to a place like Hampstead Heath Ladies Pond, everyone is there with a story. They're swimming for a reason, whether it's that they're going through something or that it helps their anxiety or that like me, they're dealing with a loss or maybe a breakup or a divorce. And when you often take the time to get to know people I'm really interested in why it is that people swim and what it helps them with because very rarely it's oh I do it because I love it it makes me feel so fit it's all there's always something there behind that why it's been a fantastic way I found to meet people that are often very vulnerable because you meet people after they've just had this healing effect of being in the water and I do find people are often more open after that and I've especially found that there's been a lot of really fantastic stories behind the reasons to why we swim as well. Yes, I do. I love all of that. And I I feel a fellow feeling with other people in the water, even if I don't. I mean, I would always chat to them, but as in (laughs) I am a chatter. I like a chat with a stranger. So I'm quite often tempted to strike up conversations and usually don't. But when I do, it's often very rewarding. And there is always some interesting, you know, people swimming on their own. There's always some interesting connection. I did this lovely event. I'm the patron of the Jersey Literary Festival. And a couple of years ago, my sense of time has gone really skew with. I I don't know. Was it five years ago? Was it three years ago? But anyway, some time ago, I did an utterly gorgeous event there at the Lido in Jersey. And people were swimming, I think, before and afterwards. And there was a, a, a local swimming group had come and a very nice person spoke about what they got from swimming in mental health terms. And it was just really moving. And it's the most beautiful. I mean, it's just an incredibly beautiful beautiful place. So yeah, it just all feels good. It feels wholesome, I think, being near the water. Mm, that's on my bucket list of swims to do in Jersey. It just looks absolutely Ever since you told me about that, I've always wanted to go. So maybe 2022 will be the year. But I'd love to know, of course, because you're an author and you're also a big reader, what some of your favorite books about swimming are, if you maybe have any. The Outrun by Amy Liptrot, which is set in Orkney. And I'm very fascinated with Orkney because we very briefly lived in Shetland when I was a baby and I don't, well, a toddler, I don't remember it, but the plan was to stay there and then it didn't happen. But I'm kind of fascinated by that. I always like this idea of parallel lives, that what would life have been like if we'd stayed in Shetland? What would I be like if I'd grown up on Shetland? I've never been there again, but I have been to Orkney, which I adored. And Amy's book is about, she grew up in Orkney and then gives up drinking and goes back to Orkney. So it's about sobriety, well, it's about alcohol and sobriety, but also it's about Orkney and the sea. And wonderful, lots of really fabulous stuff about 
nature. So I really like that. And then practically Alexandra Hemingsley's book, which I think is called Leap In, which is which again is a very good sort of practical guide for if you want to think about how to do it. Yes, I like that as well. And I'm always quite interested when people have, because, you know, I work with writers now. I do like it when someone's got some kind of swimming element to the work. So I'm hoping you'll write a book, Freya, and then I'll get <laughs> to read your swimming book. <laughs> yeah, I find I find swimming hugely inspiring and especially when I am swimming it makes me part of being present in that is that I'm always wanting to record the experience and the adventure and it's really a a way for me to bring that when I'm out of the water as well by writing it down and I remember one of the analogies that you gave me around swimming and also writing I can't remember exactly what it was but it was something that you said an endurance swimmer told you maybe you can remember about getting started and then having the ability to keep going Oh, yes, it was, uh, you know, and it's terrible. Oh, I think he's called Ross Edgley, actually. But I was listening to Rangan Chatterjee has a podcast called Feel Better or something like that, but I quite like it. And um, I think this person's called Ross Edgley. Uh, I'd never heard of him just because I don't really know much about endurance sports. He's from the whole of the UK without touching dry land. So, like, obviously, we'd be put in a boat sometimes, but not go back to land and swim around the whole thing and he said the thing with that kind of endeavor is you have to be naive enough to start and I think kind of committed enough to finish something like that and I think it's a really interesting idea and certainly with creative endeavors everything I think every I mean books they just take so much longer than you think you're going to take but that's not necessarily helpful for you to know at the beginning of the process so my agent and I always have this joke where we say that book will write itself (laughs) And of course, we know that's not true. But at the beginning, you kind of have to, you know, you have to sort of say to yourself, and I've I've kind of like briefed my family about this, that, that at the beginning, I'll be saying like, oh, it's going really well. I think it's quite easy. I think I'm going to write it quite quickly. And they have to just listen and nod at that stage, but then not be surprised when, you know, if they then say like, oh, I thought you said you were going to do a first draft of that by December. And then I'll say like, don't be ridiculous. It's going to take me 20 years. You know, they've got to sort of slightly roll with the punches because I know that it's not going to carry on being easy and smooth, but it's not useful for me to tell myself that at that stage. So that's sort of a state of, you know, an almost deluded state of naivety is quite useful at the start of creative projects. You don't want to remember or know how long it takes. So it's why when I'm working with people, I always feel it's responsible to do a little bit of expectation management. Like I don't want people to think. Part of the problem, I think, is again, in our culture, we think writers earn a lot. It doesn't seem fair or morally right to suggest to people that they will quickly be able to write something that will make them a lot of money. But I kind of tried to do that once and then say, but it's not going to serve you to you know, it it will serve you more to sit around thinking that you can be a hugely successful, phenomenally rich author if that helps you get the work done. But, you know, no one should remortgage their house on the basis that they'll be able to pay it back with their book deal money. (laughs) And also, I mean, you have the what you get out of it, which could be a little bit of money or for you, you know, some great feedback, but you have to put so much into it, not just the hours, but the resilience to keep going, the ability to really take harsh feedback and accept that there's so much more ahead of you I found that advice incredibly helpful because when I got started I thought it would be one thing and then you reach your first draft and you realize how much more there is to go and there are all these new stages and I find each stage comes a new level of acceptance that I have to reach about actually that the road you know you think you've crested the summit you think but actually there's so much more and being comfortable with continuing and keeping going when the path ahead maybe isn't so smooth has been really tough it's really hard and I'm having to learn to be resilient with it all the time and really to not give up but I'm still going so we'll, we'll see yeah and I think there are lessons in sport with that you know when I go out running I run at this and I'm you know I'm really not a good runner but I almost like like that with the running and the swimming I don't want to be good at it I want to be sort of rubbish at it but still doing it or just escape from any notion of quality so I run up this hill and I don't enjoy it but I'm just always saying to myself I'm choosing to run up this hill and I'm just going to do it. I'm just running up this hill. And sometimes, obviously, with creative projects, there's plenty of like joy and spark and curiosity. And we want to do that as well. Sometimes it just does feel like you're running up a hill and you've got to run up the hill to get to the next bit where you're kind of going down the hill. I've not had a book that's not involved some degree of 
just running up a hill on a hot day, feeling a bit thirsty and cross and not wanting to do it. And the more quickly you can move through that stage, rather than thinking that you should give up and do something else, then the, the more the sooner you'll be able to bring some you know coherence to your project and then see you know get a bit of sort of downward momentum really so I do think about that a lot I'm at an interesting stage at the moment because I've written 20,000 words of my next novel I've written more than that but I've got 20,000 words that are sort of yeah they they make sense they're in the right order etc now I know part of me knows that that 20,000 words will very possibly really radically change as the novel develops but I'm not allowing myself to think about that at the moment. What I'm thinking at the moment is, oh, I've written 20,000 words and they're really good. They're virtually there. They're only going to need a really light copy edit and I'm done. And I know that that's probably not true, but that's what I'm telling myself at the moment because I don't. it wouldn't be useful for me at the moment to be focusing on, well, I've written those words, but, you know, every, everything I've ever written, I've wrote, I've written, I write thousands of words that end up on the cutting room floor. And that's not helpful for me at the moment. So although I know that as a fact, that's not what I'm choosing to focus on. What I'm choosing to focus on is more that the sort of the intentionally naive view that it's all fine and all will be fine, which it also will be. So, <laughs> yeah, it will. So, a big goal for me at the moment is to keep writing, keep going, and keep enjoying being in that process. And it sounds like a goal for you is to continue moving forward with this book, but also to swim all year round. So, how are you thinking about? tackling that I mean one of my top tips would of course be to have some cold water at the end of your shower which is horrible when you start but instantly kind of becomes second nature have you got anybody with you that you think will continue with you for the journey to swim all year round or is this going to be just you and the water well my friend Nina Stibby who took me on a publication day swim we're going to try and swim more but she lives a little bit she lives a bit far away um so I do think companionship is good and I do the cold water shower thing as well and I've realized that I don't know if this is the right way to do it, but this is the way I can do it. Because when I first tried it, I would get out of the shower really cold and in a bad mood. So what I do now is I have a warm shower in which I wash my hair, et cetera, et cetera. Then I turn it to cold and then I splash around in that for a couple of minutes. And then I turn it to warm again so that when I get out of it and actually at the moment, I don't need to do it. But I, just as the weather gets colder, I feel if that I've always got the option of turning it back to warm so that I then don't get out of the shower feeling cold. So I've been doing that and that's been really helpful. And also to get in the water, even if I'm not swimming. So like sometimes I'll be out for a walk. Last night I was out for a walk and just walked down to the water's edge, pulled my leggings up and just went in the water to knee height for kind of five minutes whilst continuing the chat with the friend I was with. And I think that's really useful. Obviously that that involves living near the living near the sea so to get in the water even if I'm not fully immersing myself and then for me as well it's really controlling my mind so as I go in quickly I'm saying to myself I'm choosing to do this and I'm choosing to enjoy it and in the same way when I went in the water last night I just don't allow myself to think like oh it's a bit cold I went in the water and thought to myself oh this is really nice I'd love to go swimming now oh it'd be so nice to go swimming now if I only had my costume on I'd be going swimming now so again, slightly intentionally, not necessarily telling myself the truth. And then I find it all kind of comes together. And then next week, I am going to have a holiday, as in not work for a week, which I find incredibly difficult to do. So I'm hoping that I will successfully hold my boundary and not do any work for a week. I'm so bad at resting. But one of the things I'm going to try and do next week on my holiday is swim every day. And I think that will be really nice. And that will that will be lovely. Certainly for me, like with writing, having something regular is the way to do it. Whether or not I'll do it in the autumn, I don't know. I'm already travelling quite a lot, which is, of course, exciting, like going away to teach creative writing residentials for a week at a time and that sort of thing. So it's difficult. I do like going away and doing that sort of thing, but I find it much more difficult then to sort of reintegrate back into normal life. So I'm going to see how it goes this autumn. But potentially new places to swim that's often a great perk of traveling is that I end up going to swim in places that I would have never you know going on hikes that I wouldn't have done otherwise unless I'd purposefully researched a, a spot for wild swimming so maybe if there's time that'll be some new adventures for you while you're teaching as well well that's very exciting and positive I hadn't really even I hadn't even really occurred to me that that was a possibility so maybe it will be <laughs> and where are you going to be swimming on your holiday I'm just going to swim in my local beach. So I haven't worked out yet, but I'll I'll probably do it like at the same time every day. 
I get such a creature of routine as I get older, or rather, routine just really suits me. Mm. I just, I just, it's, I find it very good for anxiety just to know what I'm doing when on any day. Or, you know, part of the reason I struggle with being on holidays, I just don't like, have, I don't like not having a schedule. So I've decided I'm going to have a holiday, as in not do any work, but I'm going to still have a schedule, and the schedule is going to involve swimming, and then, and then basically swimming and reading. So I've got a nice chunky set of books from the library that I'm going to that's what I'm going to spend my holiday doing probably a little bit of walking so a bit of walking a bit of a bit of swimming and lots of reading and it's my son's birthday as well so on that day I'll be just hanging out with him doing whatever he likes and that'll be very nice Oh, well, I'm so excited for your holiday of swimming and reading which just sounds like perfection but I'm also so excited for your next book which is going to be is this number five now think so yes I'm not very good at numbers it's embarrassing isn't it that I don't know what number it is yes number five. <laughs> oh, what a huge achievement and congratulations on your most recent novel I absolutely adored it and it's been wonderful to see other people adoring it too so a well-deserved holiday but thank you so much for talking to me today about swimming it's been wonderful to chat of course we've ended up talking about writing too but I think it sounds like for the both of us they're both very interconnected which is lovely thank you for letting me dive in with you what a wonderful chat I hope you enjoyed it you can find Kathy in all of the usual places on social media and I'd also recommend subscribing to her mailing list so you can have great reading recommendations delivered straight to your inbox Her latest novel, Everyone is Still Alive, is available wherever you usually buy your books. I won't say much more than that it's set on a residential road in London and I couldn't put it down. It's so tender and intimate and I was totally absorbed in the domesticity of it. Kathy writes people fabulously. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Try Hard. Say goodbye to Chlorine and shop their skin and hair products at 15% off with the code TIDAL. See you next week.